and welcome to Pole Position, a podcast series from the Hoover Institution covering the 2016 election season. Pole Position is hosted by Hoover Research Fellow Bill Whalen, an expert in U.S. and California politics and elections. Bill's guest in this episode is David W. Brady, the Davies Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. It was recorded on June 27, 2016. Dave, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I think this is a great time of the year in terms of politics in this regard. We are mercifully, blessedly past the primary season. We get through those horrible Wednesday morning what happened stories and the horse race and the glut of polls. And it's still a few weeks before the convention, so we're just going through a lot of vice presidential speculation. But it's a great time to do one thing, and that is to look at data and look at what's going on in this election. And you happen to be sitting on a rather interesting pot of data. Tell me a bit about that. Well, the data we have been using thus far is the YouGov, the um, survey company, uh, which is uh, owned by The Economist now in Britain. So uh, they do the polls for The Economist. It's an internet survey. And uh, so we have, since uh, May, taken the same 5,000 people, a uh, sample of 5,000 people, and we re-interview them every month. Now, going into the convention, we'll interview once again. We'll interview after both conventions. And uh, what gives us an advantage in this, since it's the same people, we can actually track change over time. So if people are moving toward Clinton or Trump, you actually... You're we can actually moving, see that, yes. Unlike a, a different poll, which is a random sampling of 1,800 people over two weeks. Right, a random sample is just a cross shot, and it's not the same people, so it could be random movement in there that causes the movement. But in our case, uh, it could be random, but we can tell if it's random uh, by who's switching and why. So every month you get a fresh set of data to look at, and where do your eyes go when you first get that data? What's the first thing you're looking at? <clears throat> well, uh, to be honest, during, during, during the primary, I kept looking uh, to see, is it really possible that Donald Trump is going to get the Republican nomination? But uh, he did. So uh, now, uh, now that, as you pointed out correctly, now that we're done with that season, we go to the election, I look uh, first now for uh, what what's happened in terms of party identification. Okay. As party identification moves, mm-hmm. when we started the series, the Democrats and Republicans were a little closer together. Now there are uh, our latest poll is, uh, has the Republicans uh, down by about eight points, 33 to 25. That's generally consistent with uh, a move. Uh, across the country and other polls, too, showing the Democrats have about a seven, eight-point lead. Then I look at independents and moderates, and when I say look at them, I'm looking to see how they're voting at this present time, how many say they'll vote, how many say they won't vote. But I'm looking at party identification uh, at this point. Yeah, we have a lot of polls coming at us rather fast and furiously right now. Over the weekend, uh, the Washington Post-ABC raised a lot of eyebrows. They had uh, Hillary Clinton at 51 percent. As you know, that's a big, big deal in politics when somebody cracks 50 percent, uh, especially with these two candidates and their high negatives. Uh, NBC Wall Street Journal did their poll a little differently. They did a four-way sample where they included not just the Republicans, the Democrats, but the Libertarian and the Green as well, and they drove it down to 39 and 38 you have a lot of polls coming at you, Dave. What, what do you look at? What do you discount? And to those out there who are trying to make sense of all these bouncing numbers, what's your advice as to what really to look at? <clears throat> Thank, uh, good question. So, uh, well, first of all, I look at the first of all, I look at the YouGov poll, 
Uh, and as you know, uh, in California, on the recent uh, Senate elections, uh, as, as you know, you had uh, that poll for Hoover. Uh, that was the poll that got it right. So right. I, I have a great deal of faith in the YouGov poll, particularly because of a uh, guy who heads it, Doug Rivers, and he's a very YouGov, good we should point out, not just Donnelly does your sample, YouGov does the battleground tracker as well. Yes, which battleground is tracker, states. exactly. So... So, uh, so the bottom line is uh, he's uh, generally good, but uh, the polls are going to vary. They're going to vary uh, at this point, uh, particularly the conventions aren't quite, aren't quite there yet. It's summer. Uh, people are on vacation, so they're going to move around. Uh, they're going to move around a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, after the conventions, when you get to September, you should expect them to be more stable. So I, I recall, as uh, you do, when 1988, when Dukakis, about this time, was 17 points ahead of Bush. Right. Uh, didn't, as you remember, there wasn't a President Dukakis. So uh, there's going to be a lot of volatility in the polls. But, uh, so what am I looking for? Both these candidates have high negatives. His are higher than hers by anywhere from 7 to 10%. So when there's such negativity, adding third-party candidates, uh, as some of the polls do, will immediately bring down the totals for both Mrs. Clinton and uh, Mr. Trump. As the campaign spread, so if you recall, uh, that was true uh, in, uh, with John Anderson when right. he ran. It was true with George Wallace when he ran in 68. And uh, also it was true when Ross Perot ran. Their numbers are higher now than they actually get in November. Right. And the reason essentially is because over time, or our, our belief is what happens is as you get closer to the election, people don't want to waste a vote. Right. So they're willing to say. Now, having said that, the one caveat, and I'd like your opinion on this too, the one caveat I have is given uh, we haven't had a presidential election where there's so much disapproval of right. the two leading candidates. So we're not quite sure if all the rules apply. They certainly didn't apply in the primary. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Uh, a couple things come to mind. First of all, we talk about the 88 model and Dukakis uh, blowing that, that huge lead. Well, he took time off uh, during that summer. He did not campaign. He went dark. Uh, just as John Kerry, remember, was out wind sailing, wind surfing off in Nantucket <laughs> at the same time, thus providing probably the easiest attack ad of all time, going back and forth. Uh, candidates don't go dark. Uh, Donald Trump certainly doesn't. Hillary Clinton will not. Uh, in fact, one thing which Trump has mastered in this cycle is the ability just to drive news, uh, not always in a positive way, but it's like a kid who goes out and starts a dumpster fire every two to three days. He's just constantly churning a new item for people to obsess over and keep the narratives in the direction. So I don't see the campaign calming down and a candidate catching up in that regard. Uh, but the second thing, you're right, it's the negativity. It's, uh, look, this is like a choice between tapeworm and earworm when you get down to it. Which, which can you really live with? Um, and I imagine it's just going to be a very small sliver of voters out there who are just going to hold their breath, hold their nose, and hold off on their decision until the bitter end. When you're right, they have to vote for somebody. But you mentioned numbers, and I've been spending some time crunching numbers on this election, and I see two big problems for Donald Trump. Uh, he won the Republican nomination, Dave, and he did it by getting about 13.9 million votes in the primary. To win a national election, he's going to have to get, what, about 65 million votes, right? Mm -hmm. The last Republican to win a, pro a popular vote in the United States was George W. Bush in 2004. He did it with 62 million votes. 
So you say, fine, Donald Trump gets 62 million votes in 2016 as the president, right? No, that only happens if Hillary Clinton has a remarkable drop-off. Because what the Democrats have done is the Democrats have been able to churn out numbers, ways we haven't seen. Obama got about 69 million votes in 2008. He got about 65 million votes in 2012. 2012 was a really strange election in this regard, Dave. It was the first drop-off we've seen for an incumbent in terms of electoral votes and popular votes since Franklin Roosevelt in 1944. You know, Obama still had enough of a cushion to beat Romney by about 4 million votes. So... How does Trump get to 62 million votes, and how does he also skew the pie in this regard, in that the Democrats have had a larger share of the voting pie than, than Democrats, uh, Repo Democrats have had a larger share of the pie than, than Republicans have since 2004. So how does Trump reverse engineer these things? <clears throat> well, he, he has a problem there. Uh, uh, we've been writing in the Wall Street Journal uh, early on, as uh, far uh, long ago as uh, February, that both, that uh, Trump had problems in the middle, right. uh, which was not going to affect the primary race, but it was going to uh, affect the general election. So in uh, our uh, June poll, uh, Trump, uh, so Mrs. Clinton uh, gets 81 or 82 percent of the Democrats who say they'll vote for her. Which now, is low. Because, which is low. Because Obama uh, got 93%. Exactly. I think so it's low. And in part it's low because still only about two, 62, 63% of Sanders supporters uh, say they'll support her in the general, but that's 38% who say they right. won't. And uh, compared with 2008, when Mrs. Clinton conceded the race, uh, her supporters pretty quickly went over to uh, Mr. Obama. Right. But uh, Bernie Sanders at 38% are, are hanging in there pretty tough. So that's one difference. In, uh, in our May poll, Trump went from 74% of Republicans saying they'd vote for him to 81. But now in the June poll, he's fallen back to about 75, 76%. Okay. So that means Mrs. Clinton has a higher percentage of a bigger number and Mr. Trump has a lower percentage of a smaller number, which means that that kind of eight-point gap is now like 10 or 11 points. Right. And while in our poll, Mr. Trump does beat Ms. Clinton among independents, he doesn't beat her by anywhere enough to win the election. What, what so the, we have is, four what, points. What is the number among independents? Do you, do you know off the top? Uh, yeah, 42, 31. So a huge no he's uh, winning among independents by 10, 12 points. But uh, a huge number, of the uh, if you think the numbers, as you pointed out correctly, the number of people who at this point say they'll vote for Mrs. Clinton or Mrs. Trump, those numbers are low. Right. Uh, the number of independents who say they're not going to vote or want some third-party candidate, it's very, very high. It is. So he's got problems in this regard. First of all, even if he gets back to that 81%, Right. That's still about 12 points behind where Mitt Romney was in 2012. Mm. And Romney had a somewhat complicated relationship with Republicans. He was not, not exactly Ronald Reagan incarnate. If he is beating Hillary by, what, a, what, a modest margin among independents, that's not going to work. No, absolutely. It's interesting. If you go back to 1984, uh, even in 1984, there are more Democrats voting than there are Republicans in that race. But what does Ronald Reagan do? He does two things. First of all, he peels off a quarter of the Democratic mm. vote in that election. And then he just wallops Walter Mondale among, among independents. It's something like a 64-36 split or something like that. So tell me that Donald Trump is going to get 64% of the independent vote, or tell me that 
a quarter of the Democratic vote, which is, as we can probably assume now, is more hardened, more to the left than it was back in 1984. Tell me he can do either of those. Well, I don't, at this point, I don't see, I don't see how he can. Uh, I believe you're right. Uh, Democratic, uh, both parties have sort of moved left and right. Uh, the Democratic Party now is, so I take two groups. Uh, women and uh, non-white or minority, Latino, right. Asian American, or African American, those groups are overwhelmingly, uh, the non-white minorities are overwhelmingly against Trump. I think it was 72-13. And among women, it's about between 10 and 14-point uh, gap in mm -hmm. terms of who they'll vote for, uh, Mrs. Clinton or... So in order to win the independents uh, and the mo and moderates also, she wins among people who self-classify, say I'm a political moderate, right. she's got about a 10-point lead there. So at this point, without a different kind of campaign, I'm, I'm with you. I just don't see how he gets those numbers. And among Democrats, there's, I, I think there's absolutely no chance that he's going to get 25% or 10% even of so Democrats. So let me throw one theory at you, and that's at Bernie voters come over, come pouring over the border and vote for him. Uh, you mentioned earlier about Hillary bowing out in 2008, and you're right, it was a different different election, and boy, does she handle it differently than Bernie. She checked out of that race, Dave, on the first Saturday in June of 2008. She gave this speech, the 18 million cracks in the ceiling speech. She said three times in that speech that unequivocally she was for Barack Obama. We have to work together to elect Barack Obama. Uh, she was doing what Clintons have always done. She was maintaining her political viability, looking down the road to future elections. So she got on board. Fast forward to 2016, what is Bernie doing? He's He's making the rounds on TV right now. Uh, he's being very specific in terms of what his demands are. He wants what? He wants Hillary to come on board with free college. He wants her to come on board with universal health care. Uh, he wants her to declare a jihad against Wall Street, basically. He has very specific demands, but he is not endorsing. But what is your sense looking at these numbers about the Bernie vote out there? Well, you have to believe, uh, although the data show exactly what I said before, you still have 38 percent, which differs, as you point out, from 2008, differs from what had happened after Mrs. Clinton said she's uh, got to have Obama. Mm -hmm. um, so, so this is not based on data, but you have to believe that the Sanders supporters are not going to vote for, uh, they're not going to vote for Donald Trump, but they might vote for the Green candidate, et cetera, that's so uh, a lot of Democrats, though, are starting to get uh, pretty unhappy with Bernie. We're showing among Democrats his negatives uh, have risen in uh, the May to June period. Right. And the reason is they're, they're frustrated because he's doing this. They view him as sort of holding the party up. Yeah. And one of the reasons, I think, when you guys got the California vote right, uh, I think uh, when I say you guys got the California vote, I'm talking about uh, Hoover Stanford poll that Bill's associated with that got uh, Clinton, uh, Sanders, Barton, it got the Senate race right. Uh, the point of that was I think you saw that there were some people, Democrats, were not happy that Bernie right. was stringing this out, and that number's gone up a bit. It's like watching somebody who was on minute 14 of his 15 minutes yeah. of fame, and he just, <laughs> he can't let go, he walk off the stage, and it's, but you know, it's, for her, it must be really frustrating, Dave, in this regard. Uh, any conventional politician, what do you do? You take them into a room, you either twist their arm, you sweet talk them, you say, okay, Senator Brady, if you want to have any committee standing at all, come next year, you're now on board. Okay, who do you want appointed or something like that? But this guy, this guy's not a Democrat. He's not of the Democratic Party. If you, you read what David Axelrod 
Todd's written about when he would attend Democratic caucuses and Sanders as an independent would caucus with the Democrats to get good committee states. He'd always be sitting in the corner, just clearly, you know, the, the oddball in the room. You can't you can't attack him with conventional weapons in this cycle, so so she is stuck. I think that's right, and and uh, you know he's may he may cost her votes because my view is the the way to win the election is not to go further right. further left, and so uh, the notion of free tuition for which there's no there's no finan- there's no way that that can be financed by the government. The things he wants to push her on pulls her further away where I think the November electorate is. And it has to be very frustrating to her. Uh, how do I get back? How do I get back to the middle with this guy keep pulling me to the left? And it may just, I think you're probably right, it's just going to continue till the convention. What's your sense of the wisdom of how Trump pushes Hillary Clinton in terms of immigration, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of political correctness? Are you, do you see any, do you see that being a winning ticket for him? I, well, I, I don't see it. Uh, I don't see it at this point. But uh, given the election year and her name, so I, I think the thing you said earlier is uh, pretty important. Uh, one wag said the other day, this this may be election where it's the evil of two lessers. I don't I don't quite see it like that. I do see, given the negatives, it may well be the case that when people go in, I'm not voting for Mrs. Clinton, but I'm voting against Mr. Trump, or I'm voting against Mrs. Clinton, and. Um, if, if that's the case, you know, we've had some of that, but that, that hasn't dominated, uh, that has not uh, dominated our elections. So when you think about what, what can he do, you know, there's going to be a lot of nasty commercials, right? There are going to be commercials about the Clinton Foundation. There's going to be back and forth of the right. Trump. Uh, uh, they're going to be back and forth on the, all the things, Trump University, and you can see that's going to go on. The thing I, uh, and that's, so that what do you worry about as a political scientist? You worry about, you know, negative campaigns generally decrease turnout. Uh, will that be the case this time? But uh, and it usually happens. But though it happens in campaigns where people have positive views. Now you got a negative campaign. This might actually drive turnout by saying I really don't like Trump or I really don't like Mrs. Clinton. Therefore, I'm going to go out and vote against somebody. So that that's one. And the second thing that uh, I would actually like your opinion on this. I was asked a question giving a talk the other day. And I'm usually not a loss for words, but this time they ask, how do you think that first debate is going to go? Excuse me. And I was was stunned by, uh, well, if you're Mrs. Clinton, how do you handle, he's likely to say anything. Right. And the obvious answer is, well, you should try and look presidential. But, you know, you did more of this with Governor Wilson, so... I would be interested in your opinion about how you think about that because I've spent time talking with a couple of reporters and nobody, it's just, it's a problem for her. How right. do you, what, what do you do? So I've turned around, I'm asking you that question. Yeah, it's funny. Throughout the spring, I would uh, give talks like you, Dave, and people would say, if you're Hillary Clinton, who would you rather face, Donald Trump or Ted Cruz? And they all were expecting me to say Donald Trump, and I'd say Ted Cruz. They'd all look at me and say, why? And they very simply this, Ted Cruz would run a very predictable you know, campaign to be like batting practice in terms of one pitch coming at you at the same miles per hour constantly. Very easy to hit out of the park. Trump, on the other hand, is like to mix our sports metaphors. It's like getting in the boxing ring with a left-handed boxer and the punches are coming at weird directions. How many recent elections, Dave, have we had a, Demo- a Republican attacking a Democrat from the left on trade or attacking a Democrat from the left on foreign policy? None. It's an odd thing for her to take, but also running against somebody who will just 
you know, has never read the Marquis of Queensberry rules, obviously does not go by them, <laughs> will kick below the belt if need be. So, exactly. Yeah, so it's, um, I think the first debate's going to be awkward for her and just in terms of going in and just not knowing where he is going to punch. Uh, so that'll be tough on her. But what a strange election this is in, in this regard. In terms of the next, I mean, first, first of all, keep in mind, when was the last presidential election we've had when the two candidates were so well known to the public going in? You can't go to a convention and do what the Democrats did very well with Obama, or even the Republicans did with George Bush. Sell a narrative of somebody who you don't necessarily know. Unless you've been off the grid or under a rock for the last 30 years, you know who <laughs> Hillary Clinton yep. is or Donald Trump. So you can't reinvent these people or really spin them in a different direction. So that's challenge number one. And then the second thing that stands out, I was in D.C. a couple of weeks ago, and I was walking from the Hoover Institution's office, and I was cutting across Lafayette Park to go to a meeting. And I'm from Washington, so I always enjoy looking at the White House when I see it and seeing the looks on people's faces, taking it in. You stare at that majestic white building, Dave, and then it dawns on you, a year from now, somebody's going to be living in that building, and a majority of the American people will not be happy about it. For the simple reason, whoever wins this election this fall will not win because they received the most votes in their favor. Yep. It's because they received the most votes against the other person. Agreed. I can't. Maybe, interesting question here. Go back to a recent election where we had the same dynamic. Maybe 1968 might be might be the most applicable model where Richard Nixon won, but maybe he won because he got the most anti-Humphrey and anti-George yep. Wallace votes. Yeah, that that's that's a good that's a very good example. The other thing I'd say about that that uh, is a very good point. Romney in 2012, uh, about this time, had uh, pretty high negatives among independents, right. but his campaign brought that down. But that was because he's still introducing himself to people. So at the convention, when they showed the stuff about what a good guy he was and a good family man. That's great, but there's nothing anybody can show. That's a very interesting point. There's nothing anybody can show on Donald Trump. There's no Jimmy Carter walking across the peanut fields. There's no uh, Bill Clinton, the man from Hope. I'm going to introduce you. They know it. So that's a very that's a very good point. And so there's also a flip side to that, and that also in a perverse way that makes it more difficult to run attack ads against Hillary and against Trump. Why? If you already kind of expect the worst of that person, if you've been kind of gone through the mosh pit for the last couple of decades with him and hearing the worst things about their personal behavior, their family's behavior, their business dealings, their professional dealings, what new piece of information can you put out there that can really make people think, what a hideous human being this is? In other words, this electorate must be pretty much have its mind made up with regards to these two people, at least in terms of their character. Yeah, I think the I don't see much that can happen in terms of uh, shifting the character for either one of them. Uh, that means that this uh, what we'll be looking at pretty carefully is are the people who say they're Democrats, the 19 percent who for whatever reason right. say they're not voting for Mrs. Clinton and the 24 percent who say they're not voting for Trump among Republicans and Democrats, mm -hmm. are they in any way uh, changing their mind? Will more of them vote? I think more of them will vote than among independents. So among independents, you've got a huge number, almost 40 percent, who say, I'd just rather not vote. I'm sorry, it's more like 35, 30, 32 percent. That's a pretty big number of people who say, I'd rather not vote, or vote for somebody else, other. So we got to follow those people very carefully. Now, we're coming off the Brexit vote, where going in to Brexit, uh, the stay vote led narrowly, and coming out of Brexit, the exit vote prevailed. 
And you heard a lot of talk about how this is a direct parallel to Trump's message in terms of migration, in terms of anti-political establishment. I'm curious, Dave, about the concept of sleeper votes in elections, the idea that people maybe were not forthcoming with pollsters because they did not want to admit that they were going to vote uh, for Brexit. We saw this here in California when Arnold Schwarzenegger ran, uh, not once but twice. I did a little work with Schwarzenegger, and I noticed that when you polled Schwarzenegger, he usually did about four to five points better in elections than the polls said. And why? Probably because people just didn't want to admit on the phone that I'm going to vote for Arnold Schwarzenegger. So do you think that that might be a possible you know, road for Trump to take here, that there might just be a sleeper cell of people saying, I'm going to vote for the guy, though I'm not going to admit it? There's a little bit of evidence in that, as you point out on the Brexit thing, the phone calls, if you interviewed on the phone, it was one way, and if you interviewed on the Internet, it was another way. Right. In the case of uh, Donald Trump, uh, the YouGov poll is uh, better in that sense because it's an Internet poll and people can sit down and uh, say what they want. There's no phone. They're not talking to anyone on a phone. So, And uh, in light of that remark, we uh, our most recent poll has Mrs. Clinton up four points, not by as much as theirs. That's a possibility. Right. But we're, uh, we're looking at that, and because we can trace these people over time, we can actually see how many of uh, we can actually see if their behavior is different in 2012 than it is at present, uh, and so I think we'll have hopefully have a better handle on that than most polls. But uh, that 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 remains to be seen. Now David Cameron threw himself in the middle of Brexit. He made it a very personal referendum. Yep. He went out and said, "Don't do this. This is a terrible move." Uh, blah, blah, blah. And you're going to see Barack Obama doing the same here in October with Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. and saying, please don't vote for Donald Trump. It's the wrong course for the nation. You look at your data, Dave. What are the polls saying about Barack Obama and his influence on this election? Well, Barack, so <clears throat> several models in political science show that uh, the more popular the president, the better the president's party does. <clears throat> and uh, given the, the long primary season that you began talking about, uh, President Obama's uh, popularity ratings are up now. He's, he's uh, for the Reagan. first time, over 50 percent. Reagan country right now. Yeah, he's, he is, he's yeah. Uh, doing doing better than he has. And I expect at this point him to be a force in the election, and I don't think it'll hurt Mrs. Clinton, particularly in uh, terms of turnout. He'll, uh, I think he'll drive turnout among uh, African Americans, may drive turnout among Latinos because he's popular with them, because, and I think that's what he'll try and, and focus on. And in big states and in swing states like Florida, Ohio, Virginia. Mm -hmm. You're advising the Clinton campaign. Where would you set, you look at those polls and you see Hillary's numbers and where she might be soft. What's the biggest concern for her right now? It's we talk about African-Americans. You mentioned Hispanics. I noticed that she's had a challenge throughout the primaries with young women. Women under the age of 40 went for Sanders in a big way in Democratic primaries. Well, I think she has to, I think uh, she has to, <laughs> it's the same Bernie Sanders problem. Yeah. Uh, we're getting among that 38% that won't commit. Some of them are, in fact, uh, young women. But I don't, you know, when, I, when push comes to shove, Dan, I don't see them. Yeah. They may vote for the Green candidate. But I, I don't see them coming around. I don't see women coming, young women who think Hillary Clinton isn't far enough left. I don't see them as voting for Donald Trump. Fascinating race. So I mentioned 1968 as a model. How about 1992 as a model? Because here you have, in 1992, I lived this one personally. I was working on the Bush campaign. Boy, nothing stinks like losing a presidential campaign because you not just lose the election, but you're out of a job. Your, your life changes very dramatically. But in 92, Pat Buchanan did 
basically what Donald Trump has done in this election. He ran against the Republican establishment. He ran very hard on trade. NAFTA and Mexican trade was his big issue in 1992. And he also was vaguely racist, actually not that vaguely. His issue was English language, not Hispanics, but English language, African-Americans in particular. Uh, so the same kind of element thrown in the Republican Party right now, at which then we then saw Ross Perot come in and take up trade on a full-time <coughs> issue and thoroughly junk up the vote. So I'm looking at the map at all times, Dave, and you know, a year ago, we would have said this might be a pretty meat and potatoes election. It's going to be Ohio and Florida and a few other swing states. But now, each week, some numbers come out. I saw numbers in Utah uh, the other day. Donald Trump is ahead in Utah by about seven points. I'd be pretty shocked if Hillary Clinton beat him in Utah. My God, if she beats him in Utah, she's going to get 400 electoral votes. But the fact that Trump was at 39% in Utah makes you think, boy, he's got a problem with base conservatives. On the other hand, you look at a poll in Pennsylvania. And there he is running neck and neck with her. And boy, I'd be concerned about a state like that, which is, you know, has a big manufacturing base and feels left out and a lot of trade policy and things like that. But how screwed do you think this map is going to be by the time this is done? Well, I think, you know, it's going to vary. It'll vary state by state. But uh, so the 92 from there's 24 years uh, has passed. And what uh, what's happened, there's a lot more Hispanics. Uh, than there were then. Uh, a lot more are registered, and uh, the registration numbers, for example, I just looked at in Arizona are way up for Latinos, which may present a problem to Senator McCain, who's never been anti-Latino, but uh, just by the anti-Trump uh, well, aspect I'll of point it. you to a state like Georgia, Dave, where I believe that something <clears throat> like 80% of the population growth in the last decade has been minority, African-American or Latino. Yeah. Exactly. So all of that uh, will work against Trump. Pennsylvania is a state uh, where, uh, so in Ohio, uh, Florida, Virginia, those kinds of states, I see those given the increased minority vote in those states, I see Mrs. Clinton is having the advantage. Right. Pennsylvania, I agree with you, is one state where, given its industrial base, uh, the smaller number of Latinos, uh, et cetera, I think there that Trump does have a chance because of the industrial base that you're talking about. And uh, she's going to have to get in and run pretty hard on the anti-trade and uh, push the anti-women stuff. She'll have to run hard there. You look at the map from 2012 and you start 2016 on the same numbers and she's at 332 and he's at 206. Yeah. So he has to pick up 64 to get to the magical 270. So she has states to give. Huge advantage to Democrats, obviously. But if he picks up Florida, he picks up Ohio, he picks up Pennsylvania, he's at 273. Yeah. Game over. He's there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, those are the key state. Those are the key states for him. If uh, he, does, I would add Virginia to that list. Uh, right. Those are the four key states. If he can take those, he can win. Right. If he can't take those, uh, then he can't. So there's a combination of three of the four of those. Mm -hmm. The three you mentioned are the three uh, best for him in terms of numbers. But I put Virginia just in that pile in general because it's going to be close there too. Where are you going to? Are you going to do battleground polling this fall? What's we are going to do battleground polling what this states, fall. What states are you looking at? Uh, we're looking at, um, we're going to look at Pennsylvania, we're going to look at uh, Ohio, uh, Florida, Iowa, Wisconsin, Nevada, Colorado, and New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. Those are, uh, and maybe we, we may add when we have the discussion, we may add another one, but I think those are the, those are the key battleground states. I'm interested in Arizona. Uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the large Hispanic population that just might rise up against right. Trump. Conversely, uh, big state for Trump. Remember the same night that he got squashed in Utah in the primaries, he ran big in Arizona, yeah. a big boost for him. Uh, but there's a really fascinating Senate race to be had there too, Dave, and that's John McCain. 
who has been in the Senate for 30 years now. That's how old all of us are. John McCain has been in the Senate for 30 years. He's going for one more term. Essentially, if you look back in the 1980s Senate elections, Dave, uh, when Reagan not just uh, won big nationally, but he also swept in Republicans to the Senate, you had some Democrats who were first-termers, and they just got, they'd been elected on the Watergate wave, and they got wiped out six years later. But you had a handful of old bulls like, you know, Warren Magnuson and Gaylord Nelson and George McGovern, people right. on this podcast are now scratching their heads thinking, yeah. who the heck is he talking <laughs> about? But you had people who just kind of like a dairy product had maybe just been on the shelf a little too long. And I wonder if John McCain is going to be someone caught up in that situation where maybe he ran one race too many and was a very tough year given Trump's dynamics. Well, it's state. a Senate race. Uh, I'm not sure of the presidential, but it's a good point. Maybe we should put that, maybe we should have Arizona in that battleground state. But I think at the Senate level, I do think, uh, looking at the same numbers you are, the increased Latino residents, I think John McCain, uh, most of the people like Sabato and others who uh, list those still say it leans Republican. Right. My view is, uh, I'd say, given the points you just made, I'd say it's a toss-up state now. Is there a cutoff number in states, Dave, for presidential affecting Senate? I've heard like six, seven points is usually kind six, of Six, seven points is what it usually is. Uh, above that, uh, yes, it's by six, seven points. Okay, good stuff. Well, we're going to wind down here. Let me ask you this question. Um, Here's what fascinates me in July of 2016, Dave. It's not so much the question of how we got to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. It's how we got to Cleveland and Philadelphia as destination places for national conventions. No. Not exactly the top of my list in summertime. Yeah. So let me ask you this, David Brady. If you could have fixed the Democrats in one city in America for their conventions and Republicans in one city in America, where would you put them? Well, I don't think the Democratic choice of Philadelphia is so bad, given what, what we just said uh, about... Uh, obviously, you're not going. <laughs> no, I'm not going. But but the point is, uh, I mean, as a city, the, the point is, there's a point... Uh, a lot of times, they look at that as a place we can get in, make so a point, I'm, bring I'm mocking it just from, yeah. you know, who goes yeah. to Philadelphia in the yeah. summertime? Who, yeah. other than rock and roll fans, yeah. goes to Cleveland in the summertime? So. Nobody. Exactly. But they're going to be there this year. They are I think be. there's uh, big chances of uh, protests, in, uh, particularly in Cleveland. By the way, the Republicans are on a five election losing streak of not carrying the states that hosted their party's convention. So <laughs> maybe we need to that, toss this one aside. So here's that's my theory. not a good fight to be there. So here's my theory, Dave. I think I'd put the Democrats in New York City, and I'd put the Republicans in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. uh, New York City speaks to the Democrat existence. Louisiana speaks to the uh, Republican yeah. existence, and they're fun places to go. Yes, that's true. They would be bad. They get more people. They get me to go to either one. Okay. Hey, Brady, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more research by our fellows on the 2016 election, please visit hoover.org slash decision 2016. For more podcasts from Hoover, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.